Imagine if you would, you're a part of all that happened that last week when Jesus was alive. It was Passover. So you and many others were in Jerusalem to celebrate the holiday. Early in the week, you saw Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. The crowds laid down their cloaks and tree branches on the road he came in on. There was excitement in the air. Jesus was being presented as king. There was talk all around that he had to be the Messiah, God's promised anointed one. Hope was all around as you and many others saw this as an announcement that Jesus would overthrow the Roman government. You and your friend followed him and heard him that week speak to those in the city. So many people gathered in and around the temple. You could barely hear his teachings because you were so far away from him. He spoke parables at times. You were amazed at the authority in his teachings. You and your friend were there when, when Jesus was arrested and mocked. Didn't make sense to you. Things were not going as expected. The Messiah was supposed to come in as a ruler and redeem the Jews. The Christ was to conquer the oppre their oppressors so you all could freely worship the one true God of Scripture. So when Jesus was arrested, you were overwhelmed with concern. A stranger you came across tells you that he saw Jesus go before Pilate and Herod. And then Pilate handed him over to be crucified. On Friday, you stood afar off, outside the city walls, and watched as Jesus was put on a cross and died. None of this made sense to you. You and your friend had conversations with each other, and, and, and others as well. This was not supposed to happen. In the discussion taking place, you and others were coming to the conclusion that this Jesus was perhaps not the Christ, not the Messiah, God's anointed one who would redeem his people. Passover was over. You packed up your belongings and began to head back to your hometown with your friend. Let's read our passage in Luke 24, starting in verse 13 together. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished in their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then he told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We pray, Lord, that as we look at your word, use your word today to cut through and discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Use your word today to sanctify us in the truth. Lord, your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We often talk about the cross, and that is so important to the Christian believer, right? I mean, look behind me. This is what we look to. This is what we gaze upon, not only on Sunday mornings, but most of our Christian life. And it is invaluable, to say the least. Jesus died for our sins on that cross. He didn't deserve to die on that cross. We deserve to die. And he took our place. And yet, I hope today we're going to find out how important the resurrection is to the believer as well. If you think about it, we celebrate as a church, as a gathering, Jesus' death one day a year on Good Friday. Why do we celebrate church on Sunday? Why do we gather together as a church on Sunday? It's because of the resurrection. So we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. It is that important to the church. And so I hope and pray that that is one thing that you're going to walk away from today, is understanding how key the resurrection is. His death, definitely important. His resurrection, important too. Let's take a look first at the importance of the resurrection. I have three points to cover, and the first point is understanding the resurrection. Pertaining to the events of the weekend in Jerusalem, these two disciples were not aware of what? They were not aware of Jesus' resurrection. To these two disciples and many others, the death of Jesus was the end of all that they had hoped for. They were downcast. They were saddened. They were grieved. They were disappointed. This is why the resurrection of Jesus is so great. Death is not the end. Resurrection holds out a promise. It holds out a hope of a life after death. In a place where Jesus will wipe away every tear, death shall be no more, and there'll be no more sickness, no pain, 
for the former things have passed away. The idea of Jesus' resurrection, it's kind of irrational to a person who's not a Christian, perhaps. It seems, well, it, it seems kind of foolish to think that someone could have rose from the grave. And yet Jesus tells us the opposite in verse 25 in our passage today. He says, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. It is foolish not to believe in the resurrection. Proofs have been provided by men and women of his day. And God's word tells us the resurrection is true. To understand the importance of the resurrection, you need to understand the importance of this passage and what it's getting at. Luke is writing so that we may know that Jesus is the Messiah whose life, death, and resurrection are God's saving acts for all of humanity. Consider what Wes read this morning. I have a few favorites when it comes to the Bible, and I'm going to give you a little insight to Tim's life. My favorite chapter, my favorite chapter in the Bible is what Wes read this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul spends this entire chapter on the resurrection. Paul gives us the most succinct gospel presentation at the front end of this amazing chapter. If you look at verses 3 and 4, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures. In two verses, Paul offers the gospel. But note what Paul does then. He closes off the gospel with four verses that provide proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Follow with me, verses 5 through 8. And that he also appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul then goes on throughout the chapter and tells us in verse 14, if Christ had not been raised, has not been raised, your faith, my faith, is in vain. In verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Verse 18, if Christ has not been raised, those who have died in Christ have perished. Verse 19, if, Christ, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we're a people most to be pitied. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was not an add-on to Christianity. Jesus' death and resurrection are at the heart of Christianity. They say five organs are vital for our survival. There's the brain, the heart, the kidneys, the liver, and the lungs. For the Christian, vital to us is the person and work of Jesus Christ. He lived a life of obedience to the Father in heaven. If we understand that the wages of sin is death, we understand that Jesus did not die for his sins, for he was sinless. So his death was not for him, but it was for you and it was for me. You and I should die for our sins, forever separated from God. But Jesus' sacrificial, substitutionary death provides forgiveness. And his resurrection provides a future hope that there is more beyond our death. There is life beyond this life. In death, all is not lost for the Christian. There is life beyond death. 
How Luke decides to record the events after the resurrection is something that we should consider today. Let's look at Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Acts is written by Luke, the same author that we are reading from the Gospel of Luke today. It's really a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. The book of Acts has actually been called by some the Acts of the Risen Christ. The girls and I were gone last week for four days, and Sunday evening we asked Sandy, my wife, how she spent her time while we were gone. She let us know what she saw, what she did, and who she hung out with, and, but she didn't tell us everything, right? She didn't tell us everything. She didn't give us a play-by-play of every moment from Thursday through Sunday. Sandy told us the highlights. She told us what was important to her. The gospel writers do the same exact thing. They share with us not everything that Jesus did, but what was important. And I want to look at Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to this. He, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Luke is completely aware of 40 days of proofs to the resurrection of Jesus. He had 40 days to pick from of what he wanted to write about. There are 40 days of teachings. There are 40 days of miracles. There are 40 days of events surrounding Jesus. 40 days of him appearing to many people. All these proofs that Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead. Of all that Luke could have written about over those 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he chose only three events. And those three events could have been from any of those 40 days. But they were all on a single day in chapter 24 of Luke that he picked from. In Luke 24, he spends about a dozen verses at the beginning in the morning of the resurrection. There were some that went and, 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 and found the tomb empty, providing evidential proof. He spends about a dozen verses in the evening of the resurrection in Luke 24, when he appears to the 11, providing eyewitness accounts that he was actually risen. And then on this afternoon walk to Emmaus, he devotes about twice as many verses to two disciples who would come to know his resurrection, not as eyewitnesses, but through scripture. We will start by looking at these two disciples and their unbelief in the resurrection. Our second point today, unbelief in the resurrection. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. So going home, the conversation is centered around what happened to Jesus. They had thought he was the Christ, the anointed one of God. But they had witnessed Jesus, Jesus executed and crucified. It was over. Again, all hope completely lost. To them, the anointed one from God was going to rule. He would reign. He would save. He would crush their enemies. Certainly the Son of God does not get crucified. How can Jesus win? How can he save them when he couldn't even save himself? The disciples would know from scriptures that everyone that hung from a tree is cursed. Take a look, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hangman is cursed by God. 
And Paul recognizes this in his own writings uh, to the Galatians. In Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. From the disciples' perspective, they questioned, so how can Jesus be God's chosen one? He was hung on a tree. He therefore is cursed by God. And if he's cursed by God, how can Jesus have come to, to redeem us? Being dead, how is he going to rescue us? On the road to Emmaus, their answer to these questions would be he couldn't. He couldn't be the Christ. He couldn't be the Messiah. He couldn't be the anointed one from God. And that's why in verse 17 in Luke 24, we see that they stood still looking sad. In verses 19 and 20, they're so heavy-hearted. Listen to them. It says, Jesus was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And they crucified him. Do you hear the anguish and hopelessness in their statements? In verse 21, we see it again. We, it says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. We had hoped he would be the one to redeem us. We had hoped that he would be the Messiah. We had hoped that he would be the Christ. And as the days progress, we're becoming more and more discouraged. And then looking down to verses 22 to 24 in Luke 24, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. This just really furthered their sorrow, confusion of what actually happened. And those who went to the tomb, what did Luke say? But him they did not see. How many conversations have you had? Oh, that can't be true. She would never do that. There's no way that's true. He would never say that. We're presented with the facts, but we don't believe them. When facts don't line up with what I believe, I may assume I don't have all the facts, perhaps. I may dismiss part or all of what the eyewitnesses saw. Or simply, I'm going to believe what I want to believe in spite of the facts. Just because you have the facts doesn't mean you will believe. The disciples had the facts. They had the facts, but they didn't believe. From their perspective, all was lost. Jesus died. Hope was gone. Unbelief is a powerful, powerful tool. You can be presented with all the facts about a situation, but if you don't believe it actually happened, all the facts in the world, they're not going to change your mind. Nor do mere facts change your will either. Those who do not know Christ understand this. Unless God opens your eyes to the gospel, to a knowledge and belief that you're a sinner in desperate need of a savior, until that happens, you cannot be saved. You may know about Jesus, but do you believe and trust him for your salvation? It is only when God opens your eyes that you will see your eternal need. When God opens your eyes, you see a need for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in order to be saved it is only then you'll be able to put your faith and trust in a risen savior 
I pray your eyes are open today to the truth of the gospel. The two disciples on the road, they didn't recognize this stranger. They were actually kind of irritated with him because it seems so, it, it seems to be that he's really unaware of what's taking place. Listen in on, on Luke 24, 15 to 18. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? See how ironic this is, right? The disciples' attitude is almost silly because we know who the stranger is. Verse 21, though, it's key to understanding these despondent and saddened disciples. Verse 21 says, But we had hoped that he'd be the one to redeem Israel. We'd hoped Jesus was going to be the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one of God, the Christ. But now this is just a thing of the past. Everything is lost. At this point in the events in, verses, in verse 19, we see the two disciples' limited belief of Jesus. They say, what do they say? Jesus was a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. In their statement about Jesus, they say he was a man, they say he was a prophet, but what they do not say is that he was the Christ. Look at Luke 19, 32. There was such a big buildup, Luke 19, 32, there was such a big buildup leading to the weekend of Jerusalem. Earlier in the week, multitudes rejoiced and praised God as Jesus entered the city. Picking up in Luke 19, I'm going to actually jump over to verse 37. And 38. Luke 19, 37 and 38. The whole multitude of his, of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. In verse 38, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And now, by the end of the weekend, everything has changed. All the excitement earlier in the week, it now seems pointless because of the situation that they find themselves in now. Consider this. Have things not gone your way before? Probably. I'm sure they have. And then what happens? You become discouraged. You find yourself, if you will, in a valley. The unexpected happens, perhaps. You find yourself in a situation that's really pulled you down. And it seems like Jesus, well, it seems like he let me down too. He wasn't there for me. He didn't do what I expected him to do. Can we really fault the disciples for their attitude on that walk to Emmaus that weekend? Wouldn't we do just the same? Wouldn't we respond in a similar way? The situation does not look good. And Jesus, well, Jesus looks to them very insignificant at this time. Could you imagine if you heard a friend of a friend who rose from the grave three days after he died? Think about that. I mean, outside of Jesus' resurrection and all that, just a friend of yours rose from the grave three days after he died. What would you think? That's impossible. Are you kidding me? There's no way that could happen. Take a glance at Luke 24 through the three post-resurrection scenes that we see in this chapter. 
consider how the disciples responded. In verse 4, they were perplexed. In verse 5, they were frightened. In verse 11, they did not believe. In verse 25, they were foolish and slow of heart to believe. In verse 37, they were startled and frightened. In verse 38, they were troubled and they doubted. The idea of the resurrection, as verse 11 says in chapter 24 of Luke, these words of the resurrection seem to them as an idle tale. Do you know what turned Jesus' followers around? What was the convincing proof that Jesus was and is the Son of God? What took these frightened, troubled, doubting disciples and transformed them into the bold witnesses they were for Jesus? What changed? What caused them to move from fearful to fearless? What caused them to move from cowardly to courageous? What caused them to move from troubled to tenacious? How did they turn their world upside down? Why would they suffer? Why would they even die for their faith in Christ? The writers of the Gospels make it very clear. The first century disciples went from unbelief to belief because they saw Jesus after his death. It was because they knew and believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This takes me to the third point, belief in the resurrection. Consider these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They were in a process. They were kept from recognizing Jesus with their eyes until they recognized Jesus how? Through Scripture. Verse 32, I've read this before, but they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? The disciples had all the facts they needed to believe in the resurrection, and yet they did not believe. Why not? Why don't these two disciples believe? It wasn't for a lack of evidence. The reason they don't believe is they do not really believe in the Bible. That is why Jesus rebukes them in verse 25. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Their unbelief, their lack of belief was because they did not believe God at his word. Over in Mark 9, uh, a father brings... Uh, uh, brings Jesus his boy who is mute and, and violent due to a spirit that's, that he has. And Jesus says, all things are possible for one who believes. And what did the father say in Mark 9, 24? Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Then Jesus heals the boy. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably discovered you don't trust God it is this acknowledgement of our inadequacy that allows God to work in our lives, though. Christian, you know what the Bible says, and we trust God to take care of and direct our lives, but sometimes, sometimes, we're faced with something that seems to overpower our faith. We don't seem to have enough faith to follow God in that moment, so we ask for faith. We acknowledge that even our faith comes from God. It is his work in our lives that enable us to believe and obey. When we doubt, Christian, we can ask for faith. It's okay. When we're wavering in our resolve to follow him, we can ask for resolve. When we're unwilling to obey, we can ask to be made willing to obey. The Christian knows that 
his or her faith and obedience are always deficient. And so we will frequently ask God to help us in our belief in order to live the life that pleases him. May we see God clearly and know his faithfulness. May we know the God of the Bible as he has revealed himself to us. Might we believe God at his word. The times we doubt, may we trust Jesus. The times we question, may we look to his promises. The time it seems like everything is contradicting his truth, let's believe him at his word. What kept the two disciples on the road to Emmaus from recognizing who Jesus was? We find a lot of reasons out there, if you look it up. Their eyes were full of tears. Couldn't really make out Jesus' face. In their downtrodden state, they, they, they never looked up to see who the stranger was while they walked along the road. Perhaps his resurrected body somehow changed his appearance, and that's why they didn't recognize him. Yet we read in verse 16, what does it say? But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Luke writes that their ability to recognize Jesus was kept from them. It was an action done to them, not because of them. Can I put it plainly? God kept them from seeing who Jesus was. That's, that's it. In Luke 24, 26 to 27, we're getting to the problem at hand. Remember, they don't believe in what the scriptures had to say about Jesus and his resurrection. And here's the thing. Jesus never blames scripture for being unclear. He never says, oh, yeah, you probably missed it, and that's why, because it wasn't really clear in, in that passage. He called those out repeatedly in his day. You should have known. We see that often when he's talking with people in the Gospels. You should have known. And the exhortation is for us to hear today as well. You should know the Bible, Christian. You should have known. You and I have the full and complete revelation of God at our fingertips. You should have known. Luke 24, 26, and 27. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Here we have Jesus interpreting scripture for them. That word interpret, it actually, it's where we get our word hermeneutics from. Um, he, it's interpreting scripture. And, and to them, in all of scripture, the things concerning himself, he's saying, he's, I'm interpreting to them in all the scripture the things that concern himself. Jesus gave them a Bible study. I mean, that's in, in our vernacular, in our, in our words, uh, the words that we would use today. Jesus gave them a Bible study on the road to Emmaus. And that Bible study was about him. We have the Bible. We have God's written word so that we can read it and so that we can study it. But as we read it, we need to come to grips with this fact. It's not a book that's primarily about us. Who struggles with their Bible reading regularly? I, I admit I do. There's been, year, there's been years and times in my life I have struggled reading the Bible regularly. We can certainly just get discouraged at times in our discipline of Bible reading. I think one reason you and I can lose that eagerness and that discipline is that we misunderstand it. We read it and we're like, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And we don't understand it because we're approaching it in the wrong way. The reason we don't understand it is because we're looking at it from the wrong viewpoint. 
we think this book, this, this book that we call the Bible, is about us. We think we're the lead actor on center stage. If I come to my Bible reading thinking it's about me, that I think that this is some sort of, I'm going to see it as some sort of self-help book for me, when we consider it to be a handy book for life on how to make good moral choices for me, we've been incorrectly trained to believe this. Whether it be at a church, or nowadays a podcast, or a YouTube video, or even in Christian music sometimes. We're being told the Bible is all about us. We're being told that we are at the center and that this is our story. Then when we find ourselves reading it on our own and we're looking for something to live by or a story to inspire us, and then when we get nothing out of it because we don't see ourselves in the story, we're disappointed when we read it. What about me? Has this happened to you as you sit down to read the Bible, perhaps? We come across genealogies, right? And I'm not talking about the short ones at the beginning of Matthew or Luke 3, but there are some extensive ones in Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and 1 Chronicles. We read about worship spaces, like the construction of the tabernacle, the instruments used in worship, the exhaustive details of the temple Solomon built. Oh, and, and then there's the law, right? And I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments. That's not difficult to read. There are some instances in the first five books of the Bible in which there is page after page after page of laws. Have you ever tried to read through Leviticus? Ooh, this book has ritual after ritual in it. And then there's the list, these extensive lists of record keeping concerning contributions or, or geographical boundaries or census results. Well, then we finish reading our Bibles, especially one of these passages, and we go to God in prayer and we say, God, I'm not sure what that was all about, and I'm not really sure how it applies to me, but bless my day, amen right? What we should be doing is asking, not what does the Bible teach about my life and my worries and my problems and even my successes, but what you and I should be asking is, what does the Bible teach about God, about Jesus? For he is the theme of scripture. To understand and believe scripture is to know and believe in Jesus. In John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40, Jesus is speaking to those who are opposing him and listen into Jesus' words to them. Starting in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Then jump down to verses 46 and 47, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? It's like we find ourselves in this dimly lit room and Jesus picks up a candle and he walks around the Old Testament and he's exposing events, he's exposing procedures and rituals and laws, and he is telling us that these things speak of him. The Bible tells us a story, it's often called a, a meta-narrative, it's a fancy word, but it's just, it tells us a big story and there's four scenes or four acts to this story spread across the Bible. We have the creation we have the fall, we have redemption, and we have restoration. We're living through a story of redemption. But here's the thing, it's God's story. It's not your story. It's not my story. It's his story. 
He is gathering people to himself to restore things as they once were. We may be on the stage in the story of his redemption, but we are not the main actor. We may be on the stage, but we are not center stage. The story is his story. It's a story of a creator restoring creation, creating new creations in a people that have turned their backs on him. It is a story of what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. When we come to the Bible, these are the truths that you and I must cling to and believe in. Because when we don't understand the Bible, we can't blame the Bible for being unclear. The blame rests on you and me. It is our ignorance of Scripture, and it is our lack of faith and belief in God and His Word. Who knows for certain what the passages Jesus would have taken these two disciples to on that road to Emmaus, but here's, here's a sampling, if you will. Genesis 3, the wounded seed speaks of himself. Genesis 4, the acceptable sacrifice speaks of himself. Genesis 8, Noah's altar built for sacrifice. Exodus 12, the Passover lamb, blood was shed. Leviticus, atonement can only be made through, only through sacrificial blood. Deuteronomy 21, one hung on a tree is cursed by God. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me while he dies? Zechariah, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Isaiah 52, my servants, the Messiah will be exalted, but his appearance will be marred. And Isaiah 53, often called the fifth gospel. He will be wounded for our iniquity and pierced for our transgressions. We have Psalm 69, he was hated without reason. Psalm 41, he was betrayed. And Psalm 16, pointing to the resurrection, my holy one will not see corruption, but will be shown life. Jesus' crucifixion meant the end of all things the disciples had hoped for. From the Old Testament, they saw a Messiah that would reign and rule and conquer, not a Messiah that would be crushed, that would suffer and die on a cross. Do you see what Jesus is doing with these two disciples on this road? He is taking their scriptures and showing that God has been all along working out a redemptive plan that includes Jesus' death and resurrection. In verse 26, Luke 24, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And Jesus explains and interprets the scriptures to them. The two disciples are coming to grips with the events of the past few days and they will understand these events in light of Scripture. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, that means God did not acquit him. Because he was raised from the dead, Jesus was absolved of all wrongdoing. Yet he committed no sin. So that doesn't make sense. He did, have, he did not have any wrongdoing. So when Jesus was cursed on that tree, when he died on that cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This could only mean one thing. He was cursed and abandoned, not for himself. But what if all of this was for others, for you and for me? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What if they thought he was the Messiah? Luke 24, 32 they said to, the, to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? 
Notice the order of events. They recognized Jesus first in Scripture, then they recognized Jesus in their sight. Verses 28 to 31. So they drew near to, the, near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Consider this. What did, Jesus, what did God use to reveal Jesus to them? Well, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And we, we really can't look back to Luke chapter 22 as if this is somehow connected to the Lord's Supper because there was no wine mentioned here. So it had nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. They weren't even there at the time. Something similar did happen back in Luke chapter 9, though. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he did the same thing with the bread. He broke it and blessed it. And it was after this event, Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ. His disciples then recognized Jesus as the Messiah. And now Jesus is doing something similar with these two disciples. So catch this. As soon as the two disciples in Emmaus figured out this was Jesus, what did he do? He vanished, right? He disappeared in front of them. The question is, what caught their attention the most, though? It wasn't that he broke and blessed the bread. It wasn't that he vanished. What was it that their hearts burned over the most? What was it that provided their greatest joy? It wasn't that he vanished. It wasn't that he broke and blessed this bread. It was, was Jesus' Bible study about himself out on that road. They said to each other, did on our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. It was God's written word that revealed Jesus to them. And it is here we see why Luke spent the majority of his time on this one single event after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus knew the majority of believers would come to know him, not as eyewitnesses, but by God's very word. In John chapter 20, verse 29, recall what Jesus said to Thomas. Jesus said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He is speaking to Thomas about his resurrection. Jesus' ascension was coming. In his bodily absence, the church age would begin. And to this day, we rely on God's written word. We don't get to see Jesus face to face. Well, at least not yet. God has ensured his written word has persevered so that we have the truth. We have the proof of the resurrection. Understand this about Jesus' resurrection. Assurance of the resurrection of Jesus must come from knowing and believing God's word. Luke points to knowing and believing God's word in all three accounts that he provides after the resurrection in Luke chapter 24. If we look, look back in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, on the morning of the resurrection, in verses 6 and 7, the angel said, Jesus is not here, but has risen. But that's not all they said. Listen and understand the next line in verses 6 and 7. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. On this resurrection day, Jesus appeared to the disciples also in the evening, over in verses 36 to 49. And after he told them, he said, look at my hands and my feet. This proves that I am flesh and blood. This proves the resurrection happened. And then he ends in verses 44 and 45 with this. 
Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Our assurance of Jesus' resurrection cannot come simply from historical facts. It must come from knowing and believing the very word of God. If Jesus did, in fact, die on the cross and died for sin and rose again on the third day, certain things come from that. If God's son came into this world to die as a substitute for sinners, that must mean I'm not a good person. That must mean I'm a sinner. If Jesus was raised from the dead, that means there's some standard of person that I'm going to be held accountable to. You know, one of the easiest ways for me to avoid these truths, avoid the reality of the resurrection. Consider this. If Jesus did die a substitutionary death on the cross and was raised from the dead on the third day, he is calling us to repentance, to turn from our sin and trust him. And for those who don't believe today, you can have your sins forgiven. You can be reconciled to the God who made you. And you can have eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Respond to the gospel today. Respond today to the good news. Your sins can be forgiven, and life beyond this temporary life is, in fact, possible. Most of what we know today about history is known by the testimony of eyewitnesses. The resurrection of Jesus was, in fact, a historical event that took place. But we can't go back in time and check that out for ourselves. But we can read God's word. And we can hear it, in it, the testimony of others. And we can hear it, hear the testimony of God himself. Christian, when things get tough for you, when doubt enters, cling to the Bible. Read it. Study it. Trust God. Lean on his promises. Know that this life cannot be relied upon for joy and ultimate peace. We chase after so many things today. And sin affects not only you, but all of creation. And our hope, Christian, is in the risen Savior that we have in Jesus Christ. Our joy is found in Christ. Our hope rests in him. And this hope is a hope that is beyond this present life. That is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15 after he explains the resurrection and gives proofs of the resurrection and lays it out in the gospel that the resurrection is important. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Christian, that victory, your victory, is found in the powerful proof of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to have hearts of joy in the knowledge and belief of our risen Lord and King. Keep us, Lord, from strain by encouraging us into your written word. Nourish us on the words of faith. And may we be students of scripture and dig deep into the well of your written word.
Lord, help us to hold fast to your faithful and trustworthy words. Teach us to know the importance of the resurrection of your son. It was he who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. To know and believe in the resurrection of Jesus, this, this holds out the promise that, we are com- that as committed followers of Christ, we will one day be resurrected to a place where there's no more loss, there's no more pain, there's no more remorse or no more sin. That day we will see you face to face and faith will become sight. Lord, as we look forward to your promise of resurrection and we find our hope not in this life and the things of this life, but rather may our hope be in the resurrected Christ. May we be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding the work you have called us to. In Christ's name, amen.